Some of you will know the name Jack Miller. Jack was a minister in our denomination, influenced um, quite a number of us, both directly and indirectly. Jack was the one who was very fond of saying and summarizing the gospel, you are more sinful than you want to believe, but you are more loved than you dared to imagine. You're more sinful than you want to believe, but more loved than you dare to imagine. I don't know that there is another passage in the scripture that juxtaposes those two thoughts more compellingly uh, or clearly than Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 7. And that's the passage that we want to look at this morning. So if you'll turn there with me, we'll read these first seven verses. Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we have heard this word which you have preserved for us, kept for us. Um, and now we ask for your spirit that having heard your word, you might take this word uh, and press it into our hearts. And may we be encouraged. May we be encouraged, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you uh, may remember uh, also, in addition to remembering Jack Miller, you may remember uh, the book by Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People. I don't know why, but I read that book shortly after becoming a Christian many, many, many years ago, decades ago now, in fact. Um, I only remember one thing from the book. And that is the importance of knowing people's names, remembering people's names. Some of you are smiling. I guess you read the book too. It's an identity thing. I mean, it's an affirming thing. It's a humanizing thing to remember people's names and to be able to call them uh, by name. But that's the only thing I remember about the book. But I've thought about the book across the, the years, many times. And it's occurred to me that Paul and the other Gospel writers, writers of letters, and even Jesus himself 
would not have won many friends with their descriptions of the human condition. What Paul says here is is not likely to be heard gladly. The profile of a person apart from Christ is not flattering. It's not flattering. So why does Paul go here? Why, Why does he do this? Why after those first 13 verses, Brad mentioned them in his opening remarks, those first 13 verses where where he acknowledges this great and eternal love of God that God has for sinners, um, purposing for them that they be adopted as as his children, his sons and daughters, these opening verses in which this great work of Jesus Christ in atoning for the sin of sinners in order that they might be cleansed and redeemed, and and then, then the Spirit the one who seals all of these benefits to us, all of these glorious truths followed by this very tender prayer beginning uh, after those, that articulation of those great, those great truths, verses 14 through 18, reminding them of how deeply loved they are and then, and then moving on to the concluding paragraph, reminding them that they are God's inheritance, inheritance and, and then this incredible affirmation of a power so great that it overcomes death and evil, a power that is toward these believers, that is for these believers, directed to them. Why then does he bring this up? Why these first three verses? Well, I think it's a reminder. It's a reminder for those Ephesians. It's a reminder for us. It's a reminder first of of who they were who they were, a reminder that they had a very, very serious problem. Let me say this, you measure the seriousness of a problem by what it takes to fix it. You measure the seriousness of a problem by what is required to fix it. How great is this problem? How great was your problem? So serious, so great, that in order to be fixed, the God of heaven and earth, the creator and sustainer of everything that exists, the second person of the Trinity, must come into this world, take to himself a nature like your own, live in obedience to the law of God every single moment of every single day, not just with his acts, but from his heart, then bear your sin on a cross, be buried, and then be raised from death to life, an absolutely unprecedented thing. Your condition is so serious that only the God of creation could fix it. You couldn't. You can't. You didn't. He can. He did. You needed what he accomplished, a death and a resurrection. If you're a Christian today, that is what you needed. And if there is someone here who isn't a believer and knows it and wonders about this this poor, broken down world in which we find ourselves and, and who wonders about the poor and broken down condition of your own inner self, or somebody who may be here and who is pretending about all of this, but deep in your heart you know you don't believe it. 
If you're in one of those two categories, this is what you need, friends. You need a death. And you need a resurrection. Why? Because you are dead. And if you are a Christian, you were dead. What you've needed is a death and a resurrection. That's what Paul tells us here. And he begins by talking about our condition. He begins by talking about sin. Sin brings death. Sinners are dead. That's what he says. You were, past tense, dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead in them. So what's a trespass? My suspicion is we have some hunters here. You hunt birds, you hunt other living things and you go out into the woods and you know where you can hunt and you know where you can't hunt and you see signs that say no trespassing and you know that that produces a barrier it's it's a prohibition if you cross that line there are consequences that you will face there is a price that must be paid it's interesting my capacity as a minister ed knows this brad knows this to a lesser extent when you do funerals, you get people coming from different kinds of church backgrounds. And you can always identify the Episcopalians and the Roman Catholics because they're trespassers. You pray the Lord's Prayer, they confess their trespasses. But we as Presbyterians, we're debtors, right? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Well, we're both in the same boat. Debtors have incurred a debt because they've committed a trespass. Trespassers incur that debt precisely because of their trespasses. Trespasses are those acts of lawlessness that incur a debt. And what are sins? Sin is a more comprehensive term. As our catechism puts it, sin is any want of conformity, any want of conformity to or transgression of the law of God. Sin is any offense against God, whether of thought or word or deed. It is the things we ought to have done. It is the things we ought not to have done whether in actual action or contemplation. Sin involves things and includes things like envy and jealousy, internal things, covetousness, harboring resentment, refusing to extend forgiveness to one who has wronged you. Sin is a big, big, all-inclusive word. And it leads to death. It leads to a condition of death. And I'll just remind you that it doesn't take very much Sin to lead to a condition of death. It took one violation of the law, one act of covetousness, one premeditated transgression to plunge the whole of humanity, all of the, the human race, into a condition of misery and brokenness and disorder and deep, deep sadness. And if you question whether or not that really is what characterizes human life, please Be a little bit reflective and take a look at the world around you. It's deeply broken, deeply disordered, and profoundly sad. Paul says, you were dead. But notice something else. While dead in our trespasses and sins, these dead are actually very much alive. This death 
is a living death. Look at verse 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. I asked Brad about this before the service because he's a young person and he knows these things. I asked him about the TV series that I believe was called Walking Dead. Now, I've never seen it. I watch things like Downton Abbey and All Creatures Great and Small. But that's what these people were. That's what you were, walking dead. It's, it's a death that is a very active death. And it's interesting, too, that people living this death actually think that they are alive. They actually think they are independent, captains of their own destinies, but they are actually followers. In fact, they are actually prisoners. Look again at verse 2. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit of disobedience that is at work in the sons of disobedience. And then there's this, and I love this, verse 3. Paul includes himself. He includes himself among those who once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Here's a little aside. I said that I love the fact that Paul includes himself among those who once were dead. He's a pastor, and he's realistic about his own desperate need, his own condition apart from Christ. Folks, I want to say this. I know your pastor, and I know that he doesn't just know the gospel. I know that he knows that he needs the Jesus he preaches to you week by week by week. You never want a pastor who only says you. You want a pastor who says we. And you have that kind of pastor. So what does Paul want all of us to remember? He wants us to remember that we weren't free. We weren't alive. We were imprisoned, imprisoned in sin and death, in bondage, held captive to the world and to the devil who roams about seeking whom he may devour. And what's the evidence of this? There's a stench, a stench associated with death. There is a stench that emanates from those who pursue the passions of the flesh. And what are some of these these passions, these passions of the flesh and this stench of death that emanates? Chapters 4 and 5. Paul enumerates some of them. Hard-heartedness, callousness, greed, sensuality, bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice, foolish talk, crude joking. That is what spiritual death looks like. So far from being inanimate and harmless, this death is very active and it leads to more death. It can be prettied up. It can be polite. It can have the appearance of religion. 
It can look like law-keeping. It can look like a righteousness. It can conform to societal standards. But it is always done in a self-interested way, and it is always death. One of my all-time favorite movies is the 1979 version of Dracula with Frank Langella and Sir Lawrence Olivier. In the film, Olivier's character, Abraham von Helsing, is summoned to his daughter Mina's side. She has become desperately sick. Her illness is not diagnosed. She's just desperately sick. But what von Helsing learns is that her life has been taken. She's been taken prisoner. And she's been infected, poisoned by the vampire. He needs her blood. And the result is that she dies, only she isn't really dead. She is nosferatu, undead. Dead, but undead, still living. And Van Helsing knows this. And he knows that the only thing that will save her is a wooden stake through her heart. And so he travels to the underworld. He goes to the place of the dead. He encounters his undead daughter, confirming that she is in fact Nosferatu. And in a scene that is terrifying and haunting, Mina, with fire-red eyes and colorless death-white skin and blood-red lips, attacks her father. She is dead, but undead. Sin is vicious like that. It attacks the very things that love it. And that was you. And what did you need to be set free? You needed a stake through the heart. But you know the gospel, don't you? You know that the stake did not pierce your heart. The stake was not driven through your body. It was driven through Jesus. And it wasn't a stake. It was nails and a spear. The nails of crucifixion. The spear of Roman power and authority. You needed the cross in order to free you from your bondage in sin and death. But you needed even more than that. You needed a resurrection. To be free, you needed to be brought from death to life. And that, my friends, is precisely what has happened to you if you are a Christian this morning. You were dead and you've been brought to life. You see it in verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with him by grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This language should sound very familiar to you because it's the very language that Paul used in reference to Jesus himself. That's who you were. He wants them to remember who they were, but he wants them to know who they are now. And he is saying that what is true of Jesus 
the power that raised Jesus from death to life, the power that seated him at the right hand of the Father, the power that seated him far above all rule and authority. What is true of Jesus is true of you, raised from death to life, seated with Jesus at the right hand of the Father. That's who you are, and interestingly, that is where you are. It's hard to get our heads around this thing. I know you're in this room. I know you have residences. I have a residence about four blocks from here, 268 Woodmont Drive. But in the view of the gospel, in the view of the scriptures, what is true for you, what is true for the Ephesians, that there is a greater reality. And that greater reality is that you are in Jesus Christ. That is your environment. That is your realm. That is your locale. That is your place. And what is true of him touching his still real and very much alive humanity is true of you. Alive from the dead, ruling with Jesus at the Father's right hand. That is who you are in Christ Jesus. We talk about having Christ in us. It's good language. It's biblical language. Galatians 2, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Colossians 1.27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. But far and away, over 150 times in the New Testament, the language of the Bible is that we are in him. We are in Christ. We are in Christ Jesus. We are in the Beloved. That is our location. That is our identity. That is who we are. And how does that happen? How does it happen? It happens because of love and mercy and grace. All three terms are in this text. And we sort of use them interchangeably, almost as though they were synonyms, but there are nuances of difference. There are shades of meaning about these terms. Look again at verse 4. After reminding the Ephesians who they were, what was, was true of them, Paul reminds them that God, who is rich in mercy, rich in mercy, superabounding in mercy, limitless in mercy. What is mercy? Mercy is compassion. Matthew 9, 36 The Greek word is translated in that way. It is translated as compassion. When Jesus saw the crowds, that they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, he felt compassion for them. Mark chapter 1, verse 41. Jesus engages a leper. The leper pleads with Jesus, makes his plea to Jesus that he be healed. And Jesus felt pity for him. He saw him in his in his desperate condition, and he felt pity for him. It's that internal thing. It's what, it's what happens in your gut when you see someone in distress. You know, we continue to get these news reports from the Ukraine, these, these news releases, the flood of refugees, the, the death and the destitution, the innocent people who are being so affected by what is happening over there. What do you feel? You feel pity. Something on the inside of you begins to move and, and, and burn even. That's how one commentator describes the emotion of Jesus. His whole inner being began to move and burn when he saw the leper, when he saw 
the sheep harassed and helpless. B.B. Warfield, in an article entitled The Emotional Life of Our Lord, argues that the most frequently mentioned emotion in the Gospels in reference to Jesus is the emotion of compassion. That's the nature of your God. That's the nature of your Savior. It's in his heart. But notice where this compassion originates, this mercy originates. It originates in the love of God. God who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. The soil out of which this this mercy grows, the ground out of which it emerges, if you will, is love. And how great is this love? This love is as great as his mercy. It's a a never-ending, never-failing, always and forever kind of love. Right? You pity the Ukrainians, you feel something for them. You pity starving children, you, you pity the distressed, but do you love them? Do you love them? What happens to mercy when mercy is the fruit of love? When our oldest daughter was 11 years old, she had a sinus surgery to create drainage in her sinus cavity. And after the surgery, she's in the recovery room and she's coming out from under the anesthesia and she's afraid and she's ripping at these tubes and she's crying. Her face is stuffed with packing to stanch the bleeding. She's terrified. What did I feel? I felt compassion, but I felt compassion on steroids. I felt pity, but I felt pity on steroids. My heart was breaking. Why? Because this is my daughter, and I love my daughter, and I've loved my daughter for a very long time. I still remember when Barb took my hand one night. We were sitting in bed. She took my hand and placed it on her stomach, and I felt my daughter move for the very first time. I can still feel it. My daughter, my child, whom I love. And I loved her even longer than that from before I felt her move. I loved her from the moment I knew she was coming. I loved her for a very long time. How long and how deeply have you been loved by your heavenly Father? Paul's told you. He's told you that you have been loved with a never-fading, never-dying, infinite, always and forever love from before the foundation of the world. You have been loved by the Father with the very same love with which he loves his own eternally begotten Son. Jesus said so in John chapter 17. That they know that you love them even as you have loved me. How long have you been loved? And what does God see? What does he feel when he sees you in your desperate and helpless condition? His whole inner being moves and burns for your relief from distress. He cares because he loves. But here's the deal. Compassion is empty and love is meaningless if it doesn't act, if it doesn't do something. That's what grace is. 
Grace is mercy rooted in love, acting, acting, doing something. Write it down. Write it down. Grace is mercy rooted in love, acting, doing something. And that is what has happened. Grace is the God of heaven and earth who has loved you with an everlasting love, who sees you in your distress, doing what he alone could do, giving you his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver you from sin's terrible consequences. Not only legally, not only penally, but experientially, existentially, Delivering you, getting you out of the prison house of sin and delivering you into life. Grace is mercy rooted in love in action. And I love this quote by Gerhardus Voss. It's from a sermon he preached on Jeremiah 31.3. Some of you know this. The text that he preached from is, Yea, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And Voss writes this. Think about this, folks. In the unlimitable round of his timeless existence, we have never been absent from nor uncared for by him. The best proof that he will never cease to love us lies in that he never began. The best proof that he will never cease to love us lies in that he never began. There has never been a time, never, when you have not been loved by your heavenly Father. And do you know what? That isn't even the best of it. The best is yet to come. Why does God do all of this? Why does he love in this way? Why does he show his mercy by rescuing us from sin and death? Why why does he act as he does through the cross and the grave and resurrection and ascension? Why does he do all of this? Verse 7. So that in the coming ages, across the whole span of eternity, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Folks, if you're a Christian today, you've had a first taste, but you haven't had the final taste. You haven't had the consummate taste. If you're a Christian today, you've you've had the first glance, if you will. That's language that George Herbert uses in a poem which I would commend to you entitled The Glance. You've experienced the first glance, which which in Herbert's phrasing is like a sugar that has captured your heart. It's, It's given you a taste of something better. But then Herbert writes this at the end of the poem. If thy first glance be so powerful, a mirth but opened and sealed up again, what wonders shall we feel when we shall see thy full-eyed love, when thou shalt look us out of pain? 
in heaven above. The greater, better look, the greater glance, the greater taste is out in front of you, friend. It is the ages in which he will show you the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward you in Christ Jesus. Can you imagine? Can you imagine bathing in, without mitigation, without interruption, the infinite love of God? Can you imagine all doubts removed, all fears assuaged, all brokenness healed, nothing but the pure delight of being loved and loving in return. That's why he did this, so that you might know that. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you, thank you, thank you for the gift of your Son. And thank you that this work which you've begun, you will finish. Thank you that you will bring us all the way home into this pure, unmitigated, uninterrupted delight of loving and being loved. How we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me as we sing?